I was at a park one day. I, I was two years sober, and I went to a park where I used to drink and use, and I was just laying on a picnic bench, and I said, you know what, God? I know cars run on gas, and I know this bench is solid. I know this for a fact. Now, prove to me you exist, and I'll do whatever you want. And whammo. <laughs> he did. What happened? Episode 76, I bring in Anthony Brown. I saw him in a documentary on Fox 11 in regards to homelessness in Los Angeles and San Francisco and essentially California. A heck of a story. Anthony's mom was shot in the head, somehow lived. He never met his dad, became homeless at 14 years old. I'm not going to tell you the rest because you need to hear it for yourself. So let's get to it. Episode 76, Anthony Brown. Here we go. You've got quite the journey. The first time I saw you was on that documentary on Fox 11, and I was I was blown away with the entire documentary. But I, I loved your story. Um, I, I love the fact that you're open, honest, and just out there with it. And, and it's, it's appreciated because it can help others. And hopefully this story here today does the same. Uh, let's start back to uh, where the journey kind of started. You left home at the age of 14, correct? Yes, I ran away from home at 14. I come from um, a really abusive background. Mm-hmm. Uh, single parent, only mom, uh, no dad. I didn't even know my dad until I was 15 years old. And so there was a lot of abuse. And when I was 14, I decided to um, leave. And that's where my journey began. So you were on the streets at the age of 15. You met your dad on the street? I never met my dad at all, ever. Oh, I thought you said you met him at 15 years old. No, I got to know his name at 15 mm. when I got my first birth certificate. Wow. Got it. So you were you were being abused by your mother, and you said, I've had enough. I'm out of here. Right, right. Um, before that, when I was nine, my mom got shot in the head, and we found her laying there, but she lived. Wow. How did she, who shot her? Um, I was thinking it was my stepfather, but I couldn't prove it. But that allowed me to have a resentment for a long time. Sure. Wow. You know, and so I walked around with that. Then 14, I ran away from home during the carnival and did that for um, about four years. And then I came to California. So what state were you in? I'm from Ohio originally. Ohio. So you were, uh, so you were 14. So you get, you got to California at the age of 18? Yes. And, and what happened when you got here? Strange thing, I was homeless. <laughs> um, I lived in a park. When I was 14, I was heavily addicted. And then when I came out here, it wasn't hard for me to transition or take my addiction with me. And so I just, you know, slept in parks, abandoned buildings, all of that stuff. Tried to work periodically, but that never turned out to be anything. And so I just pretty much stayed on the streets to try selling drugs. I say try selling drugs because I constantly got busted and I spent most of the 90s in prison. Hmm. You said you tried to work. Why Why weren't you able to work? Why wasn't I? Yeah. Being homeless and working, I mean, it's it's embarrassing. You go, your clothes are dirty, you might not smell fresh. Um, and then I stole a whole bunch um, at my jobs. I used to do some fast food work and things like that mm-hmm. and getting caught and moving forward. And so um, I think the first real job I got 
was when I was um, I got a job as a janitor at a um, developmental center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being out in the streets and doing drugs, that didn't last very long. I even tried to go to school under the influence of drugs, and that didn't last very long. Hmm. But I was always living on the street or on somebody's couch or whatever that was. But, you know, you, you're getting paid from a job. Did it ever click in your mind to say, hey, maybe let me go get an apartment and live under a roof rather than live on the streets? No, because um, all my money went to drugs. Wow. Man. What kind of drugs were you doing? In the end, I was pretty much doing everything, mostly uppers, cocaine, methamphetamines, um, acid. I tried heroin once or twice, but that wasn't my cup of tea. Smoked PCP for a while. Done almost everything imaginable. You know, quaaludes, sopers, just whatever. You know, mm-hmm. smoked a bunch of weed and drank a bunch of wine. And when you were off it, I mean, how often were you off it? When, but when you were, did you feel different? Like you, you had to have it constantly? The only time I was actually off drugs from 15 to 37 is those periods of being in jail. And that was brief because you can get drugs in jail too. But that's pretty much the only time I was off. I, didn't, I really didn't think I had a problem, to be honest with you. I was living in such a delusional state. I didn't think anything was wrong. You were going to jail purely for trying to sell drugs or other yeah. reasons? Uh, selling drugs, fighting, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, and when you were in jail, the longest you were in jail for was, was how long? Two and a half years. And you weren't doing drugs for two and a half years? Um, hmm. The last time, no. But the other times before then, yes. So it was almost like a rehab center for you as well when you were in jail. Yeah. I mean, um, they feed you. <laughs> you know, you got uh, showers and stuff like that. Uh, back then, you could lift weights and, you know, all of that stuff. The last time I was in jail, it's a time that I, I really just said, you know, I'm done. What, what finally woke you up? Well... In 1996, I got arrested by a police officer that asked me if I wanted some help. And that kind of broke the cycle. And then I, um, I went to treatment. I was in treatment for 18 months, but probably after nine months, I started, you know, after a year, I started using again. Hmm. But physically, I was sober, but mentally, I was still had addictive thinking. And the program was provided by the state, no out-of-pocket for you? Uh, no, it was out-of-pocket, but uh, they scholarshiped me. And then once I got a job, then I could pay them back. But I ended up, um, after I graduated from there, I relapsed. Mm. Wow. So so the police officer asked you if you need help. And you you like at that point, did you, you said prior that you didn't think you needed help. You thought this was the way of life. And so no no other police officer asked you that question until then? If they did, I didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm, I'm out there living that lifestyle, you know, all my life, the police wasn't, they were the enemy. You know, actually all my life, everybody was the enemy. Yep. You know, I mean, who was around when my mom got shot? Nobody. Who was around when we were hungry? Nobody. Who was around when my mom was beating me? Nobody. So it's like, it was me against the world. And so dealing with police officers is like, okay, you just do your job. I'll do mine. Mm-hmm. Your job is to arrest me. My job is to avoid you. And then finally one said, Hey, do you want some help? And this was 
God, I, I was out there probably 21 years or 22 years. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Why do you think that clicked? Why do you think it clicked that time? I was just tired. Yeah. I, was, I mean, by then my mom had died. I've been out in the streets for so long. All my friends around me were dying. Even getting high didn't work anymore. Wow. And if, if I could have died, that would have been okay. Because I was to the point where I really didn't have any feelings for anything. I mean, I didn't feel nothing. It's an odd feeling of when you just don't feel nothing. You just exist. I mean, there is no happy. There's no sad. There's nothing. Just, I'm here. Yeah, you're just numb. You're numb to the world. Exactly. And and I've been already put in prison, so what are you going to do? You're going to lock me up? So what? I've been in so many vulnerable situations. What are you going to do? Kill me? So what? Am I ever going to make something out of my life? I doubt it. So what? And so that's how I was walking the streets as that shell. And when that cop asked me if I wanted some help, I, I guess I'm just, I just went like, okay, whatever. And I didn't know that he had a friend that worked in treatment, introduced me to this different life and all of that stuff. So you said you went to treatment, but then you relapsed. What happened after you relapsed? After I relapsed, I wanted to get sober so bad. It was pathetic wow. <laughs> because I was, I was sober for a year and, I experienced this whole different life. I mean, people were nice. I wasn't paranoid. I didn't have to worry about anything. But the only thing is, sobriety was just boring. I, I miss the pizzazz of drinking and using. You know, I, I miss the ability of being somebody because you have drugs. I, I miss that because in sobriety, I was just like, yeah, just a nothing. And it was like, there, there, there wasn't that thrill there. It's like, what am I even doing? It's just so boring. And then one day, um, my friend's wife was going to the donut shop. And she said, well, you know what? So-and-so's over here and he's got troubles. I went over there and they were doing math and I did some math. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, I hate it. Wow. So that was a wake-up call for you. Yeah. It, it showed me how vulnerable I really am. Yeah. Are you a spiritual man? Yes. Did you have a moment with God? I've always had God in my life. Um, God's changed. Uh, he used to be a God of punishment when I was a little kid. Then when I was out there in the, you know, my disease, he was a God of um, rescue. And now he's like my best friend. Hmm. But I had, I had a huge, profound spiritual experience at two years sober that's still with me today. Let's hear it. I was at a park one day. I, I was two years sober, and I went to a park where I used to drink and use and I was just laying on a picnic bench, and I said, you know what, God? I know cars run on gas, and I know this bench is solid. I know this for a fact. Now, prove to me you exist, and I'll do whatever you want. And whammo. <laughs> he did. What happened? The trees above me got in 3D, and they were in pastel. And then I looked down at the ground, and all these little creatures that was in the woods like rabbits and squirrels and you know everything was like surrounding my table and then i got this feeling of calmness within me and then i got my three instructions that i live by today wow were you high at the time nope two years sober wow how old were you then let's see i'm 23 years sober so 21 years ago i think i was 39 so you essentially you've made a pact with god right Yes. My, my three things that I'm, I am told to do is never hate, never intentionally cause harm to anybody, 
and always finish what I start. Those are those are my instructions. Yeah, that's not a bad way to live, man. I like it. Yeah, and the results are I come from having an eighth grade education, homeless, to the person that I am today. Yeah, and what are you today? What are you doing? Oh my God. <laughs> well. I'm a teacher at a community college. I'm a bachelor level nurse. I own a business. Well, I'm starting a business in Ohio. I own a business in California. I've wrote one book, been featured in magazines, developed treatment programs around here. I was a director of nursing for a couple of years. Um, what else am I doing? Did that documentary, just finished an animation that I just turned over stuff like that yeah no it's great it's keeping you busy what what's the business out here in california um it's called care coordinating the system recovery environments and what we do is we go in and we uh, provide educational plans for different facilities whether it's a hospital or um, a treatment center anything that has to do with co-occurring disorders mental health substance abuse etc hmm. and um, we pick up contracts and go in and do groups or workshops lectures uh, things like that what city is that in? I was in Anaheim. Okay. And I'm assuming you're doing the same thing in Ohio or you're going to attempt to? Um, Ohio, um, I'm, creating a, I'm, I'm creating a transitional homeless program. So they're transitioning from homeless to civilization, essentially? Yeah, from homeless to a productive member of society. Yes, very good. It's cool because you're giving back to your town. That's where you're from. That's very cool. What, what is homelessness like in Ohio these days? Um, homelessness, because I haven't been out there in years, so when I hear, it's pretty much the same per capita. You know, there's a large percentage out there, and I just want to do something about it. And that's that's my big thing right now. I want people to know that there is a solution. I mean, figuring out the homeless problem isn't hard. It isn't. If everybody just get out the way. But it's it's really simple, actually. What do you mean by everybody get out the way? Because... Um, when it comes to dealing with homelessness, for one thing, we have this whole pay-for-play thing. And so people who have the biggest voices have the systems that's been implemented that's not working completely to what it's designed for. But those are the people that get all the funding and the biggest voice, and those are the ones that get to implement whatever it is that they want to do. So they need to step back. And two, everybody's in their own little silos where collectively we can do this. Because homelessness isn't a ho- just a housing problem or a substance abuse problem or a mental health problem. It's a combination of all of those. And where people fail to look at it is to be able to put it in its true spectrum. There's two ways to look at it. One, what's causing the homeless? And two, how do you get somebody out of it? And if you break those two down, is you look at what's feeding into that homeless circle. You have people coming out of institutions with no support system. You have people losing jobs with no support system. You know, you have all of those different things occurring. And if you don't stop that ahead of time, then it's going to become this downward thing and you're going to end up in a homeless situation. And then when you're in homelessness, then you have to look at it as having 10, 10 different levels of it because it's just not acute and chronic. It's not just, well, you, you lost your house and you're homeless. Or you're out in the street having delusions or hallucinations and talking to yourself. It's a spectrum. And what we should do or what I recommend or suggest is figure out each of those spectrums and apply treatment to those spectrums, to each level in that spectrum. And that's what my whole theory is all about. You experience on the ground. Um, you, you know f- full well as to 
how they are, how they live mentally, how they act and react, a percentage um, of the homeless front. How many of those do you think are savable? Well, I think everybody's savable. Mm -hmm. It's just to what degree are we able to save them? Because we have the ways and means of stabilizing everybody in any condition. Because I I work in healthcare. I've been been a nurse one way or the other since 2001. And I've been working in psych since then. We can stabilize anybody. We can we can pull somebody. We can take somebody to court and pull their rights and go. You're going to take these medications. Force you to take these medications. Change the whole neural structure of your brain and get you stabilized. We can do that. And that takes care of the mental illness. The problem is how do we sustain it? So I think everybody is savable. Some people it's going to take longer because you have that whole mentality that people create. The whole self concept. They believe that they're homeless, so you start acting homeless, and thereby you do things that homeless people do. And so that takes a whole lot of cognitive restructuring, but I think everybody's savable. Mm-hmm. And how much of this do you think is political? Um, a lot. And you, you know, I, I tend to come up with some bright ideas. And what's really fascinating is what would happen if the homeless people or the people out there in the street realized that they can vote? You know how much of a change that would be? You, you, want, you know how many politicians would actually get down there and do what they're supposed to if they knew all those people could vote? Good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. good point. You know what's crazy, Anthony, is, as you know, uh, maybe in the last five years, New York sent a lot of their homeless people to California. And, and New York has really taken it serious, 96% of the homelessness is under roof and they're embarrassed about the 4% that's on the streets. LA, there's 25% of the homelessness under roof today and they're not embarrassed enough about the 75%. Right. Well, one thing, cause I'm from back East, you have to, you have to be indoors because of the climate. Okay, that's a given. But out here is, uh, I mean, you don't have to be indoors. And then we, um, I, I don't know what the problem is out here, to be honest with you. Um, I know a lot of people come out here because I myself came out here, and not because there was a better living. It's I, I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. My friend suggested it. But for those people who come from other states, and that's, that's one of the premises of why I'm building a program back east, then if by chance you come out here for whatever reason, whether it's coming to treatment or whatever, then you go back home and transition back into your environment. Because a lot of times people will come out here and go to treatment and they, and it's treatment failure, then they get kicked out and they have nowhere to go. Now, don't the politicians, the local politicians in California or any state, aren't they incentivized to bring homelessness into their state because then they get federal money for them, for each person? It, you know, it would be nice if they thought about that. But I think... Um, it requires a lot of work and a lot of coming out of the, your comfort zone. That's, that's the whole thing. And so I think if they, if they came out of their comfort zone and realized the benefit, how it's going to benefit them, then they would do it. Because, again, this is something that's solvable. We, we, have a, we have so much abandoned property that we can create systems with. We have abandoned air bases. We have these old prisons we closed and treat, you know, all kinds of stuff. But why not? help people get in there and then allow them to work there, create a vocation, whether you're cutting grass, washing dishes, or painting buildings. 
but at least you're earning your pay. That helps improve their self-worth. And next thing you know, you got another taxpayer. The friends that you were around on the streets, how did they become homeless? A lot of them were addicted. There's a lot of people who have some trauma that's out there. And that's another thing, too. There's, there's always something that's underlying there. A lot of people like myself, I was born in trauma. Trauma, and I didn't even know I was in trauma until, until a couple months ago. Mm. And somebody go, hey, your whole life was trauma. And that takes time because people don't want to deal with that part of the onion. And so we're going to do whatever it takes, you know, to not have to experience that. But if you're in an environment that's really nurturing and accepting, and it does take a long period of time, you know, maybe you can get down to the root cause of it. But a lot of people out there, it's, it's some sort of trauma that occurred somewhere in their life, and they're just trying to cope with it the best that they can. Were they kind of like you in the sense of, oh, no, this is my life. I'm not supposed to not be on the streets. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Is there, is there a, there, I don't think there's another life besides this. Was that the same mentality you saw around you? It's various shades. Yeah. Various shades. Because I, I was homeless since I was 14, and so that, that was all I knew. You know, but there's some people that become homeless at 30, 40 years old where they actually had a life sure. and then something happened. And so that's a different mentality that you're dealing with out there. You had siblings? You have siblings? Yeah. And what happened to them? What are they up to today? Let's see. My brother, he's, he's, because I'm not close to my family, but my brother, I think, is staying in some shelter. My oldest sister is bouncing back and forth between places to live, and my younger sister is stable, but I don't think she's employed. All of us went through the substance abuse problem. Yeah. Are they out in Ohio? Yes. Do you keep tabs on, on most of them? I do. For a long time, I've isolated myself from everybody, and as I grew into my recovery, I'm learning how to um, reach out and... Uh, because that's a lot of introspective work. It's like, well, why wouldn't you want to contact your family? It's like, okay, well, who's there for you? And so that takes a lot of internal work. But I could, I could say that there's progress. Yeah, good. Do you ever visit uh, the Homeless Front or Skid Row or any other parts of California? I go to Skid Row every now and again, not as often, but mostly in Orange County. Like, I'll see a homeless camp. I'll sit down and chit-chat with them. Or I have friends that's out there in the street. It takes a lot of work. And um, it seemed like every time somebody that I know needs an intervention or needs some help uh, with this situation, they call me and I go do what I can. But we need long-term solution in a long-term environment, you know, not just, hey, um, here's a donut and a cup of coffee. Or, or even if I take them to a place, so many different places have so many different rules. Like you have to, some you have to belong to the specific religious, religious organization to get in or some you have to be part of this kind of clique. And it's like, people just want help. But initially, you're going to get those defense mechanisms because, hey, what do you want from me? I'm already scared and paranoid, and I'm already left off. First of all, are you honest and are you real? Where's your consistency? Because what's the use of even trying when I know in a couple of days I'm going to be back out, out here again? Yeah, for sure. So if you had a plan for homelessness and, and kind of getting these guys back to to being productive citizens, what would it be? How would you do it? For one thing, and that's what I'm doing in Ohio, I bought a, um, a 9,000 square foot 1916 abandoned mansion. Hmm. And it's called Brown Manor. And that's where I'm going to do my work. I'm going to allow people to come in. You know, probably 
no more than eight to ten. And, you know, just learn how to live life. First, the environment's going to be, we accept you as you are. If you want to, you know, but we have certain rules. You know, you got to take care of your environment. You know, you can't disrespect the house. If you want to sit up in the middle of the night and go see what you have to go through, then that's fine. Just make a commitment you want to do something different. We'll, we'll help you discover what's different. Just make a commitment you want to do something different. And as you go through stuff, because there's a lot of different things. You have a lot of uh, physiological problems, you know, diabetes, all kinds of infections. Let's deal with all of that and um, work on some, because your social skills is the last thing I care about. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't care if you cuss at me. What I care about is can you stay sober and can we take care of your house? And as you feel better, then we can deal with some of the sociological aspects, you know, but we got to take care of the, the basic food and water, and, you know, safety and all of that stuff. Then we worry about the love and, you know, whatnot. So my idea of that is, again, you'll be in, a, you'll be in that house and all we're going to talk about is success or what can we do to help you. We kind of role model a lot of different things, you know, and that's why, um, my story's out there in public because I want people to see it. I want I want somebody to be able to go, hey, you know, I heard of you. And it's like, okay, yeah, I am real. I, I do know how to do this, you know, and you can too. And I've talked to a lot of people, and there's a lot of people around me that have slept in cars before, have been homeless, and now they're going to school and, you know, wanting to grow up to have this kind of lifestyle. So I think that um, once you create an atmosphere or environment that supports it and demonstrates it, then you're most you're more than likely to become part of that environment, thereby changing who you are in the environment. Yeah, you're you're the example of the possibility, right? That it can happen. You've been through it all. You've been through a tough life. Yeah. And it, it could have <laughs> you know, it could have been easy for you to just give up. And at times in life you did. You didn't know you were, but you essentially were giving up. But you had that wake up moment and it's it's really it's a beautiful thing. And it's cool because it's it could happen to every single one of them out there. Earlier, you said that the 100% of them are savable. What about those who just don't want to be fixed or, or just don't want to be bothered? I, I think those who say that do, mm-hmm. but that's just their defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. I think everybody has that innate desire to thrive. I think it's built into us as human beings. We want to survive. We want to live. It's just, how do we do it? Is there like a lot of fear? Because I've run into people go, I'll leave me alone. I, I was talking to a guy the other day, and um, he was just laying out on the curb, drunk, and had trash around me because people were giving food, and we said, and we talked. And his thing is, man, I want help, but I just, you know, I have ulcers. I have, no, you also got a double hernia. I, the court sends me to this place, but they kicked me out because I'm drinking. You know, and he goes, why should I even try? But I want some help. I'm like, you know what? And so I just sat on the curb with him, and we talked a little bit. And so I think everybody wants help. I really do. Now, you might not be in the right frame of mind. You might be delusional. All of those things come into play. But I think everybody wants help. The thing is, a lot of times people will automatically come up with a defense mechanism and say, well, you know what? I have my rights. Leave me alone. Okay, that's fine. And that's because they only have two choices. You know, this or total confinement. But what if I gave you five choices? Then you could choose from the lesser of an evil out of five opposed to only two. Mm-hmm. When's the last time you had a drink? Uh, well, it was March 29th, 1999. Wow, man, 20, 23 years ago. 
23 years ago. Yeah, and it's funny because um, I was homeless 23 years, and now I haven't had a drink or a drug in 23 years. Man, so the last time you got high or you had a drink was 23 years ago. Yes, March 28, 1999 was the last time I put anything in my body to alter the way I feel. Good for you, man. I think that's long enough for you to keep it that way. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like the results. I really do. And uh, I, can't, I can't come up with a good enough reasons of why to change how my life is. There's nothing I can do here. I can be of service. I can learn new things. I retain information. I'm, I'm currently going to school right now to be a nurse practitioner. And I, and I laugh because, again, I have this relationship with God, and I'm just going to be the, the ghetto doctor. You know, I'm going to be that guy out there in the streets taking care of people. that's what i'm supposed to do we are brothers and sisters very very beautiful uh when you see a drink or or you see somebody taking drugs or you see a story on drugs you just get grossed out by it not really because that's just part of the journey yeah some people can drink and everything could be fine you know not everybody that drinks is an alcoholic or some people can do drugs that's that's on them but it's all part of their journey we have so many different medications out there (laughs) Again, I was talking to a guy today. He was saying that his 75-year-old mother is addicted to benzodiazepine. And she ran out, and she's, she's losing it. And she's been on it for 25 years. What do we do about grandma? You know, the only thing I can say is whenever a psychiatrist prescribed that to her, tell her to go back to them and let them know that, hey, she's withdrawing. You can't just stop somebody cold turkey on a benzo. Uh, that opens up the chances for seizures and everything else. And at the age of 75, are you going to change that lady's life? And so situations like that occur. But that's still somebody that's addicted. So everybody has their own journey. If, if people want to drink and use, there is absolutely nothing I could do about that addiction because it's so powerful that it's in there. And no matter what you say to them, they're going to do it until they have like a moment of clarity. Then you can say, you know, don't you want to do something different? But it has to be consistent. I, I, I see it all the time. Yeah. Let's talk about the book from Park Bench to Park Avenue. The Park Bench. Is it that time that you had that conversation with God? Yeah. Well, from Park Bench to Park Avenue, that's my entire autobiography from the time when I was born with an umbilical cord tied around my neck all the way up until I um. I got a job working as a college professor, and I just go through the different um, stages of life, you know, what it's like to uh, go through childhood trauma, what it's like to be addicted, what it's like to be homeless, what it's like to be in jail, and then the experience I had with, um, with God, and then how my life changed, and, you know, some of the struggles of going to school with an eighth-grade education and learning different things, because at the age of 37, I didn't even know how to fill out a job application. I really didn't. I had no social skills. And so that book talks about that, and then it goes on to say more about how um, in order for me to keep this, I have to give it away. You know, other deals I've made with God, like to look out for people, um, Bill Brown Manor, all of that. And so that book's from my autobiography, and it's, it's fun because going through that book, it gave me a lot of insight into what's really important in life. I discovered that all of us have an expiration date, and what you're going to do between your time and your expiration date is what makes life life. You know, you can go through it all rough and insane, or you can find some peace and serenity and coast through graciously. It's all up to you, but it takes some inside work in order to get the outside results. 
for you, what's the most important thing in life? The most important thing in life? Or the most important things? Being of service is really important for me because I wasn't given a second chance. I want to give everybody a second chance no matter what level they are. I think that's important. Being understanding is important because nobody's perfect and we all communicate in different ways. So learning to um, understand that people are just people doing people-ish things, I think that's important. I know my uh, a lot of my friends hate it when I say this, but money's not really important. I know you need it, mm-hmm. and believe me, I'm I'm not like rich and I need money for Brown Manor, but that's not really the most important thing in this world. Uh, I think um, being comfortable, you don't have to be happy, but just being comfortable with who you are, wherever you are, I think that's important. Yeah. Man, you've got an, an amazing journey, Anthony. I am um, so, so proud of you. I know there's a lot of those who have gone through what you've gone through and, and the stories aren't told enough. So I'm so happy I was able to track you down and, and get you on here and you were able to talk about your journey and, and hopefully people will buy the book and get inspired and they'll listen to this episode and get inspired. They'll follow your journey and get inspired. God bless you, man. This is awesome. Well, thank you. I, again, this is why I actually came public. And this is why I continue to do what I do because one of the difficult things, well, not difficult, but one of the challenges that I find myself is, and, and I kind of smile because God says after finishing whatever I start, I start. But sometimes I get tired. Like I'm 60 now, and I've been going full speed for 23 years. And some of my, some people around me say, "Well, dude, why are you getting this house for the homeless people? Why are you doing this? You know, it's like you can settle. You you can retire." I mean, I actually can retire. It's like, you can retire. Why are you doing this? It's like, because it's what's supposed to be done. And so um, that, you know, getting tired, going, okay, God, take a deep breath and then go back out there again. And, you know, I think that's one of the challenges, but I, I just like doing it. You know, I get up in the morning and I hit my knees before I hit my feet and ask for direction and do exactly what's in front of me to the best of my ability. Beautiful. That's awesome. Is there anything else you want to talk about that I didn't touch? I just, I don't understand. I don't understand why we have to have conflict. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I believe in competition a lot, but I don't understand why there's so much conflict over over nothing because none of this stuff is, is permanent. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a Hertz with a U-Haul trailer connected to it, so you're not taking none of this with you. Yep. So what's, what's the big deal about this? Yep. That's kind of fascinating, but... Again, when I look at things um, in the grand schemes, I do rely a lot on God of my kind of understanding. And I guess the whole creation is like some crazy tapestry. You know, on one side it looks all mosaic and beautiful, and on the other side it's just a bunch of knots and strings. And maybe it takes those knots and strings to make everything beautiful. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, we're we're divided. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of pissed off people in the country, in the world. And your direction in my opinion, is the right one that your, your, your best friend is God because there's not enough of that in schools. There's not enough of that in homes. And if there was more God talk and you brought them in both areas, I guarantee you our country wouldn't be the way it is. Mm. Well, when you look at history, especially in like the Bible or something, when God gets tired, he makes changes, mm. like big ones. I like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel the tide. I feel the tide. It's cha- it's changing. It's slowly changing. Mm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm doing whatever I can 
to get the message that homeless people are just people that need support. And and trust me, if you, if you help them with enough support, you're going to have productive member of society. I mean, my goodness, I, <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a nurse and a teacher. Yeah. When would you ever think, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just reviewing that the other day. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. Like, I used to be out of a dumpster, and now I'm teaching people on how to provide health care for elderly people. That's so awesome. So that's great, Anthony. Keep doing what you're doing. 60 don't mean nothing. You look amazing. Keep up everything that you're doing because uh, you're, you're doing part of God's work, and he's proud of you. He's doing God's work indeed. Uh, the, the answer that I love the most is when I asked him, how many of these you know, homeless people are savable? He said 100%. You can stabilize them. It's just a matter of getting their minds right and the mindset right. I don't know that feeling, so it's hard for me to relate. I'm sure it's hard for a lot of us to relate. I, mean, I don't think I'm being insensitive or ignorant when I say there's always jobs available, but... I guess you're in a moment of crisis and like you said, you're embarrassed to walk into a job and, and try to get work. But um, yeah, I, I think there's always opportunity as long as you want the opportunity. It's there. It's there. And he is a testament as to making it happen and starting over again. I mean, he's now 23 years sober. That's it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I love these stories because you're down in the dumps. Your life can't get any worse. And like you said, he thought this is how it is. This is how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be on the streets. And then, boom, police officer asks him if he needs help. And he says, yeah, I guess so. And just like that, man. He's got three businesses, living a good life. He's 60 years old. He said he can retire if he wants to. <laughs> right? So, you know, a lot of us take a lot of things for granted. A lot of us aren't on the streets, but some way, somehow, we're down and out. I think at the end of the day, we do not realize what we have, and we take it all for granted. And instead, we should take advantage of it. So, thanks for making me a part of your day. It is appreciated. You can hit me up on Instagram. That's where all the content lies, Miked Up Pod. Thank you to Anthony Brown for taking the time. I look forward to seeing you guys on the next one. I am Mike Gabriel. This is Mike the Pod. Until next time, folks, no wasted days. Let's go. Let's go.